The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Support for today's show comes from... Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move into a reality, including a free domain. Not to mention, with Squarespace's beautifully designed templates and customizable features, creating a beautiful website is a simple and intuitive process. Just add and arrange your content with the click of a mouse and it is done. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code so smart to get 10% off of your first purchase. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 98. Think for yourself. Question authority. Think for yourself. Question authority. And make god awful electronic music, apparently, because this terrible, terrible audio comes from a guided trip by psychologist and LSD super guru, Timothy Leary. The words you use, the modes of communication you use, determine. The realities you inhabit. Now, the idea behind this guided trip, which, as you can hear, has not aged all that well, is the same idea and aim of much of Leary's philosophy, which was there was freedom in chaos. If you safely shatter your mind, you can then reassemble it by your own rules instead of the rules of an authority. And, of course, that's where the LSD came in. Change the medium. Change the words you use. Change the mode of communication. You change the medium, you change yourself, you change your society. Near the end of his life, Leary put out a lot of stuff like this. You could get it on CDs, you could find it maybe floating around on the early internet. He was really, really into, in the 1980s, the late 80s and the early 1990s, this cyberpunk subculture that was starting to flourish. Here's his definition from back then for what a cyberpunk was. So cyberpunk is a person who um, takes navigational control over the um, cybernetic electronic equipment and uses it not for the army and not for the government, not for the Lufthansa uh, airline, but for his or her own personal purpose. 
Leary saw this subculture as the manifestation of an ultimate version of the freedom that he had been pursuing since the 1960s. Tune in, turn on, drop out, as he would say. And it meshed perfectly with the cyberpunk ethos at the time, which was, and in many ways still is, information wants to be free. And anyone who wants to centralize and gatekeep information is doing so to exert power over others, and so to decentralize that information, both its production and its distribution, is to fight for a better democracy. Here's Timothy Leary describing that very concept nearly 30 years ago. I have the uh, thumbnail chip that in 10 years, they tell us, we'll have a billion transistors costing a few dollars. Uh, what that means is that um, the inner city kid can walk around with with more information processing and transmitting ability than ABC, CBS right now for less money than a pair of Nikes. So uh, this is going to be uh, uh, decentralization. It's going to mean uh, ultimate democracy. Who, you know, who controls the press controls the people. Who controls the tube controls the people. In the future, we'll all be controlling our own screens and zapping our messages around. So Timothy Leary was pretty kooky at times. He did a lot of acid, and he asked you to do a lot of acid. But he was also right about a lot of stuff. I mean, this in particular is what's happening right now at this very second. You're listening to this. I'm making it right now. It is the realization of this democratization, this decentralization, this fragmentation of media. And people who've predicted this have often thought what he thought, that computers and the Internet would end the reign of television and other traditional media And many of the people at the time that this was just beginning, they believed the future of human interaction would be this multimedia psychedelic freakout. And I'd like to think that it is, at times, that thing. If you get deep enough into YouTube, for sure, it feels that way. And they imagined that cyberpunks and electronic shaman would zoom around this emerging World Wide Web and they'd pull back the curtains and they would reveal the truth about science and technology and sociology and reality itself to everyone. the 60s, we said power to the people. In the 90s, in the digital multimedia 90s, we say power to the people. This idea that Timothy Leary had, a population completely free, no longer limited by information deficit, with full and easy access to all the information they could ever want, and on top of that, no gatekeepers, everyone able to choose what goes into their minds, the ultimate democracy, as he said is not a new dream. Benjamin Franklin helped create the Postal Service to disseminate information through a network of newspapers and correspondence for much the same purpose. And Franklin thought that public libraries, one in every community, would make farmers as educated as the aristocracy, which would empower this new kind of democracy. The 19th century rationalist philosophers all thought that widespread public education would eliminate all superstitions. The same was said of public universities, and then came computers, and then the internet, and social media, and the smartphone, and in many ways, this dream has been realized. But little did these champions of the Enlightenment know that once we had access to all the facts, well, reason and rationality wouldn't just immediately wash across the land in a giant wave of Enlightenment thinking. I mean, I think this has happened in some ways, but at the same time, it's also unshackled some of our deepest psychological tendencies, things that Enlightenment thinkers didn't know about or weren't too worried about or couldn't have predicted. 
many of which we've discussed in previous episodes, the backfire effect, confirmation bias, selective skepticism, filter bubbles, things like that. And they have always been with us, of course, but modern technology has provided them with the perfect environment to flourish. In cognitive scientist George Lakoff's book, The Political Mind, he argues that we need a new enlightenment, one which takes into account all the things that neuroscience and psychology have learned in the last 100 years. Lakoff says that most of our politics and laws and institutions were built around an 18th century image of human cognition. They believed that once educated, humans could shed every animalistic tendency, every thought would become conscious. All reasoning would be separated from emotion and untainted by perception. All arguments would be tamed by logic, devoid of bias and agendas. With public libraries, public education, and if they could have imagined it, the internet, we would all become objective scientific reasoners. And that would be what democracy would be like. All these very smart people, very educated, and not pulled back by superstition or ideology. And, of course, we've learned since then that this this describes uh, no one who's ever lived or whoever will. Minds don't work this way. If we want the world that Leary and Franklin and the philosophers of yore imagined, Lakoff says that we have to reconfigure our politics and our laws and our institutions, rebuild them in the image of how brains actually work, not how we wish they worked. So on this note, on this path, on this this tangent, I want you to think about something that we talked about in our Backfire Effect series a few episodes ago. We explored why people resist facts and how when they do resist them, it sometimes makes them even more sure they are correct when, in fact, they are wrong. But we also mentioned that there was a way out of all of that. Political scientist David Redlosk explained that each person has a threshold beyond which they will realize that they're wrong and they need to update their beliefs. Now, everyone is different, but on average, that moment comes when about a third of the information coming your way disconfirms your preconceived notions. But that 30% number is very misleading because a lot of people never reach it. And in this episode, we're exploring why that's true. And it's something that I think Leary and Franklin's high-minded ideas of what people would do with all this information, I don't think, I don't think their assumptions included this phenomenon, this psychological entity that we're going to talk about in this episode called Active Information Avoidance. Yeah, so that the idea is really that um, because there's so much information out in the world, you can't, uh, you can't pay attention to all of it. You have to limit your attention to some information. This is social scientist David Hagman. Uh, Hi, my name is David Hagman, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Social and Decision Sciences at Carnegie Mellon University. David says that active information avoidance requires three things. One, the information would probably be useful to you. Two, you know it exists and you could get it. And three, it's easy to get it. In fact, it might actually not just be free, it might actually cost you some money to not get the information. Uh, imagine like you can't subscribe to a sm- every small town newspaper in the country. Uh, that information is just not relevant or interesting to you. But active information is that you know the information would be useful and interesting to you. And it's also available at low cost, or it may even be costly to avoid. If you still choose to not get that information, then we would call it active information avoidance. Active information avoidance means that you are actually willing to incur some cost to avoid the information. 
This is George Lowenstein. I'm George Lowenstein, professor of economics and psychology at Carnegie Mellon University. George and David, along with co-author Russell Corman, recently released a giant paper all about active information avoidance and all the different ways that we exhibit this, in many instances, counterintuitive behavior. It requires two elements. Um, we have to be aware that the information exists and we have to have either free access to it or even better, we have to be willing to pay or incur a cost to avoid being exposed to it. This behavior can seem strange if you think of yourself as being the captain of the ship, that is your brain and your body. But most contemporary neuroscience sees the mind as a collection of agencies, each with its own agenda, all competing for control of the organism and bound by the notion of the self, guided by executive decisions. But in many cases, they play games to get what they really want. Uh so you might imagine that uh, the number of calories in a particular dessert uh, are really useful information to have, especially if you're on a diet. So if you know that this piece of cake has you know, 600 calories, maybe you won't eat it after all. Uh, and so in one uh, study, they gave people the option to find out uh, whether or not or what the number of calories in a particular dessert were. And what they found was that um, people who were dieting were actually more likely to avoid that information. So if you're trying to watch your weight, you really don't want to know how many calories there are in it. And then uh, when they told people anyway uh, how many calories there were in it, and people who were dieting were then much less likely to want that piece of cake. So the idea here is that um, you, you want to avoid the information exactly because you want to eat that piece of cake. <laughs> you know if you find out you won't eat it, but you really do want to eat it. So, <laughs> Another great example of active information avoidance comes from a study in which people expected to receive ratings of their attractiveness or their IQs. They had people um, take an, um, either take an intelligence test, an IQ test, or... Um, get evaluate their have their attractiveness evaluated by other people, and they were ranked compared to the other people in this group. So, it was all fellow students from the same university, and they gave um, people kind of a small taste of the information that they could expect to get if they got the full information. So, maybe they would um, grade score the IQ test based on just a few questions, or they would tell you what it, just a small number of people who rated your attractiveness how they rated your attractive, attractiveness. And uh, what they then did is they said, you know, what, what rank do you think you are? So compared to other, the other, let's say, nine people in this room, how attractive do you think you are? And someone might say, well, I'm the third most attractive person in here. And then what happened was they, they got a piece of information that said, compared to one randomly selected participant, you're more attractive than that person, let's say. And then they asked them again, what rank do you think you are now? And so you might think that this person would now say, ah, maybe I'm the second most attractive person in here. So they take the information, they're more attractive than someone else, and they do what we call update their beliefs. So now they think they're maybe a little bit more attractive than they thought before. But what happens if they get information that says you're less attractive than some random other person in the laboratory? And what they found was that when the initial information was below people's expectations, they tended to um, avoid getting any more information. In fact, in some cases, they were actually um, willing to pay to avoid getting any other information. 
And so there it's really, if the information is you're more attractive than someone, you take it into account and you act rationally, as economists might predict. But then if, it, if you find out that you're less attractive uh, than someone else, you tend to ignore that information much more readily. The study demonstrates exactly what Lowenstein and Hagman mean by active information avoidance. The information's right there. And not only is it free, but the participants knew that they could get a little extra money for finishing the experiment. Yet, they thought the information might cause them some anguish, and it might cause them to call into question some beliefs they'd rather not give up. So, they chose not to gain that knowledge. You've probably noticed this quite a bit during the most recent U.S. presidential election, as people became aware of which news outlets and friends were most likely to tell them things they'd rather not know, they began to block and avoid them even if they offered important news that might have swayed their opinion. Since they were in control, power to the pupil, as Timothy Leary said, they chose not to consume that information. Now, if you plan on voting, you'd think that this would be very important to you, that you would want to make as informed a choice as possible. And this is not how classical economics said that people were supposed to behave. The standard view is that we are what economists call Bayesians, that is, that we have some prior views, and then as when we receive new information, we update our um, priors in a rational fashion, taking into account the kind of evidentiary value of the new information. Ideally, we would just ignore the least useful information. And this is something economists call rational inattention. So we kind of dispassionately um, process and interpret the significance of new information that we're exposed to. Of course, we rarely do this. And there are many examples from actual, real, common, everyday life that you probably are familiar with right now. Things like not opening a bill because you don't want to know what it's going to tell you. Not checking your bank account because you don't want to know how little money you have. And not going to the doctor. Not going to the doctor because you don't want to know what that person's going to tell you that may affect your life from that point going forward, even though it's vital that you have that information. So I think one of the uh, most interesting illustrations is a paper by Emily Oster and colleagues. Um, so they look at uh, patients who have one parent with uh, Huntington's disease. Now, Huntington's disease is a genetic condition. It greatly reduces someone's life expectancy. And if you have one parent with the condition, then you have exactly a 50% chance of suffering from it as well. Now, it turns out there's a pretty cheap test that will tell you conclusively whether or not you have the condition, but there's no cure or treatment that would let you prevent any of the consequences. Now, pretty cheap isn't free, but given the high stakes of the decision, cost is really not what's keeping anyone from doing this. And so economists would, would think of this information as really useful. So there's no treatment or cure, but it could affect your decision whether to have children and possibly risk passing the gene on to them. And it really should impact how much you save for retirement, right? Now, that sounds terrible, but imagine if you know that your life expectancy is, say, 20 years less than average, uh, you might actually enjoy vacations a lot more, right? Rather than saving, you go out and you travel more, you live more in the moment. So potentially, the, it's not all bad news. But of course, most non-economists uh, would focus on the, uh, on the lack of an available treatment and would say, you know, this creates a lot of anxiety. And so maybe it's not surprising that fewer than 10% of people in that position actually end up getting tested. 
And the rest of them make life decisions similar to people who find out that they don't have the condition. So they seem to maintain this sense of optimism about their outlook. So this tendency to avoid information we'd rather not have in our heads can have really big consequences for companies that are attempting to get information to people who they think would benefit from it. For a while, we worked with, um, we were we were exploring the idea of working with someone from, um, I think it was Fannie Mae, the big um, mortgage company. And this was um, a few years into the um, after the mortgage crisis, and Fannie Mae um, had a great offer for people. They were re- they were ready to simply um, reduce the principal on their mortgage for people who were underwater and had been making payments. But the problem was that they sent out lots and lots of letters to people, giving them this amazing um, offer, and people just wouldn't open the envelopes, and <laughs> so uh, people weren't taking advantage of it. At first, they thought okay, the paperwork is too complicated because it was several pages of paperwork that they had to complete. So they simplified it down to, I think, a single page. But even that didn't work because people never opened the envelope. And so they didn't, they didn't see what the offer was and they didn't see how simple it was to take advantage of it. There are many ways we can avoid information. We can, of course, just physically avoid it, keep it away from our senses. But we can also employ some things we've explored in previous episodes. Motivated skepticism, for example, is a really great way to do this. Just only fact check that which disagrees with your opinions and you will effectively avoid information actively. Another strategy that Lowenstein and Hagman mention is something called active forgetting, which sounds impossible, but... We actually have a lot more control over our memory than you might think. So in one study, um, participants had to read an honor code and they were told they would get paid based on how many items of this honor code they would remember. And then in a second part, uh, some participants had the opportunity to cheat in a task and earn more money by cheating. Mm. Uh, And it turns out that the participants who had this opportunity to cheat uh, ended up remembering fewer items from the honor code. <laughs> uh, and so to some extent, you don't want to think of yourself as being uh, unethical. And the great way to do that is to just not remember what exactly it is to be unethical. Active forgetting in that way is just usually as simple as only rehearsing the memories that you would like to think about and allowing your other memories to just die on the vine. You might not be able to deliberately forget things, but only tending to the parts of your memory garden that you prefer will, over time, ensure that the rest degrades more quickly. Lowenstein and Hagman said that there are, of course, some very bad outcomes that can result from active information avoidance. When companies merge, for example, either side or both might not do their due diligence because they don't want to learn anything that might ruin that deal. There's so many stories in which executives who really want to move forward with the acquisition sort of um, either ignore or downplay the emerging bad um, information and just go forward with mergers or acquisitions that are often um, disastrous for the company. Another negative impact would be when heads of state or people in positions of power avoid information to protect their prior decisions, to feel as though they were never wrong. Or maybe 
A boss doesn't want to know if something unethical is happening on his or her watch. You know, a manager or a CEO may actively want to avoid information and not find out what's really going on. And in part, uh, the way laws are written is they, they might even encourage this. So there's this idea that if you didn't know about something, it's much harder to hold someone legally responsible for it. And scaled up, there are world-threatening implications. Things like um, putting our putting our um, head in the sand on problems like um, climate change, that, that would be a, um, a very serious consequence of information avoidance. Despite the potential for causing harm, despite this existential threat that it might produce, this tendency, this psychological phenomenon of active information avoidance often is rational. It often has very positive outcomes for the person. Uh, George had a good example. Well, first, I think people do it for a reason. Um, they do it because they're afraid, very likely correctly, that the information would be painful. For a number of years, I was there, when I was starting out in academia, I was a really bad teacher, and I would, ne I would never read my teaching ratings. And part of it was that I knew it would just be so miserable to look at the information, so I was just protecting myself. And... But part of it was also like maybe it would be the end of one semester, I'd get the teaching ratings and I'd be about to start teaching the new, the new semester. And I knew that if I was just too discouraged, I'd be an even worse teacher. So people do avoid information for good reasons. On the other hand, people who are bad teachers are exactly the people who should be looking at these evaluations and finding out what they're doing wrong. So that's kind of both the positive side and the negative side encapsulated in one example. Another positive example, well, it's kind of complicated, but it's positive in a lot of ways, is something that George calls the ostrich effect. So, yeah, in, in two papers, we've been um, looking at information avoidance among investors. George has this paper where he looks at when investors log into their investment portfolios. For these investors, they very, very rarely trade. So it's really the adult equivalent of um, child shaking the piggy bank. And so he and his colleagues find that on days when the stock markets are down in, and investors could probably expect having made some losses themselves, uh, they are less likely to log in than on days when the market is up. There were some people who had portfolios that included only bonds. But for, if you're holding bonds and the stock market goes up, that's bad news because you, um, f you didn't experience gains that you would have experienced if you had stock. And so what we find is that um, the bondholders display exactly the opposite pattern. When the stock market goes up, they stay off. And when the stock market goes down, um, they, that's when they log on. And they call people like that ostriches because they seek to avoid bad news. People tend to um, display um, more extreme information avoidance when the stakes are large. And when we looked at um, the size of people's portfolio holdings, you might think that the bigger your holdings, the more important it is to kind of view information in an impartial fashion. But we found exactly the opposite, that the bigger people's holdings were the more ostrich they became, the more li the less likely they were to look at their holdings when the market was down, and the more likely they were to look at the market their holdings when the market went up. Now, 
since you asked about the benefits of avoidance, it turns out that these ostriches actually do better financially. Because if you don't log in to check your balance, you're also not tempted to sell the stocks that went down. And holding on to stocks more often than not is exactly what you should be doing in that case. So there's a bit of a, it's almost like a commitment device. If I don't find out I've incurred losses, I'm not tempted to sell. Acknowledging that active information avoidance exists and expecting it to occur can really challenge some things that we tend to assume about how people work. For instance, more information tends to polarize people, not bring them into alignment. With climate change, for example, the more educated a person becomes about that issue, the more they move in the direction they were already leaning. The more informed they become, the more conservatives tend to believe even less that humans are responsible, and liberals tend to believe even more that they're responsible. Also, if people believe something very strongly, they tend to vilify and dismiss sources that present opposing attitudes rather than coming up with good reasons to discount that information. Recently, this has led to people calling anything they disagree with fake news, which is not a new behavior, not at all. Conservatives have hated the New York Times for decades, and the same is true of Fox News for the left. It is, however, something made more salient by this new media environment and increased control over what goes into our brains. And I think also um, the fact that we don't have a shared news source also makes it harder to debate or to try and persuade each other because we're no longer starting off from the same basis. So given these truths about how brains actually work, I asked George and David what advice they had for those of us who still dig this idea of a well-informed public making rational decisions in a thriving democracy. I think a lot of people are thinking about um, new ways that the internet um, could be used to either um, could be modified to either reduce the problem or like, for example, um, some social media sites are, are trying to eliminate posting of fake news. And there's also um, people who are um, working on ideas like um, trying to get people who have very divergent beliefs to interact with one another and present the evidence because um, so kind of in an exchange in, in a kind of um, exchange put their view put their views at risk in exchange for somebody else putting their views at risk you know and um, kind of reciprocal exposure to threatening information so hopefully hopefully some of these new um, initiatives will yield benefits. Uh, I think just being aware that we're prone to avoiding unpleasant information is a good step. So, you know, maybe the next time you see a headline in the paper that goes against your views, uh, read the article. Uh, if you're on the left, start reading the Wall Street Journal. If you're on the right, look at the New York Times. And, you know, go beyond the news and read opinion pieces that argue against what you believe. Uh, it's going to require conscious effort and may even be painful at first. Uh, but I think... It, you know, I, I wish I had a better answer, but but I think it's, it, it really is requires an active effort to overcome. George Lowenstein and David Hagman are both working on these issues over at Carnegie Mellon University. I'll have links to their paper and to their personal pages in the show notes for this episode at youarenotsosmart.com. 
Also, George asked if you, the audience for the show, would be interested in helping him with an experiment related to information avoidance. The link for people who would like to participate is bit.ly slash decision research. That's bit.ly slash decision research. I'll have a link to that at the website as well. Support for this episode came from Squarespace. Whatever your next big idea might be, you can count on Squarespace to help you create an eye-catching online platform that brings it to life. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work or a store to sell your products and services or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to look like an expert right from the start. You even get a unique domain, which strengthens your brand and makes it easier for visitors to find you. Award-winning templates, beautiful websites, simple, intuitive processes, rearrange your content on the fly with the click of a mouse, nothing to install, nothing to patch or upgrade, and any questions you have, 24-7 customer support with any problem, no matter how technical or trivial. It's your own IT department. So make your next move and start your free trial at squarespace.com today. Enter the offer code so smart to get 10% off your first purchase. That's so smart, S O S M A R T. This episode is also brought to you by the Great Courses Plus. You have unlimited access to engaging video lectures on just about any topic history, science, politics, even how to take better photos. And they're presented by award winning experts. The Great Courses Plus has more than 8,000 lectures, and new ones are added all the time. And you can stream them from any device. I like this course. This is something that they provided just recently. It's Outsmart Yourself, Brain-Based Strategies to a Better You. It explains brain hacks that we should all know, like why you should avoid wearing glasses around someone you're interested in, why not to tell too many people your long-term goals, and what exercises to do to keep your brain sharp as you get older. I particularly like the part about how language changes your brain. I think that's the one that you'll like too. It's all about how humans have a language instinct like any other living creature has an instinct and what happens when we use that instinct to learn a different set of definitions and ideas than maybe someone in another culture would use for those same concepts. It's great. Right now, as one of my listeners, you get a free month of The Great Courses Plus when you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Smart. So get started today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. I snuck those ads in there, didn't I? <laughs> I didn't want to put them in the middle of the show and interrupt the flow of the story. But up next, a cookie and then the end credits. with the letter C. Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that start with C. Uh, uh, who cares about other things? C is for On most episodes of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. And if Mandy, my wife, if she bakes that cookie, if we select your recipe and that's the cookie for that episode, you get a signed copy of the book, You Are Not So Smart, or the second book, You Are Now Less Dumb. So send your cookie recipes to 
david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if we make that cookie, you get a book. So this episode, the cookie comes from someone who did not want their name to be revealed and said, please just call me Ubi Dubium. So, okay, Ubi, this is your cookie. You wrote, I loved your website since before you started the podcast. This is not an original recipe, but these cookies are so good that I had to share them with you. With the apples and caramel and cinnamon, they taste just like fall. And I am a big fan of fall tastes. And I want to say that this this could knock pumpkin spice right off of its throne because it's so good. These are caramel apple cider cookies. And they taste like caramel apple cider. They taste a bit like a caramel-covered apple that you might get at the fair, but also like the nice toasty drink. They're wonderful. My mouth is watering thinking about this. One cup of butter, you get sugar and salt and spiced apple cider, instant drink mix, eggs, vanilla extract, flour, baking soda, baking powder, cinnamon, a bag of caramels. You put it all together. It's really great. We'll have the recipe at the website for anyone who wants to make it, and I'm going to try it right now. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just as good. Oh my. So the... The first time I tried this, I tried one last night. Oh my God. Mm. It's so good. They shock you. They have this, uh, they, they, do, they really do surprise you because it's an unassuming looking cookie. It looks like a little sugar cookie, but when you bite into it, very soft, thick. And in the middle is this gooey caramel center and it mixes with all the apple cinnamon flavor. And it is just shocking how great it is. Also, mm, the caramel, it forces you to chew it very slowly and deliberately. And it sort of enhances the cookie experience because you have to spend more time chewing. Ma'am, no, look, mm. if you, you know that question, um, if aliens came to earth, who would we send as our ambassador? Like if they came to earth, peaceful intentions, and they said, we just want to talk to one person at first, who would we send, right? And since John Luke Picard doesn't exist, I don't know who we would who we would send, but I do know this. I would um I would have them bring a batch of these cookies because this is indicative of the finest things we can produce. This is and this is an example of how good we can be. Oh, what a great cookie, Ubi Dubium! The recipe for this will be at the website, and uh, a book is on its way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. For more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboingpodcasts.com. And you can get all the past episodes wherever you get podcasts, including the website and iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. You can follow us at... Not Smart blog on Twitter. I'm at David McRaney. Also on Facebook, it's just You Are Not So Smart. And on Patreon, it's You Are Not So Smart. And please do pitch in if you can, because we're trying to hire a reporter. And I do believe it would make for some really great episodes to have another person going out into the world and bringing stuff back and helping us cobble it together in interesting stories about how we delude ourselves. Coming soon, more logical fallacy episodes, episodes about the replication crisis and memory, DNA. Ah.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.